You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dr. Olaf von Schuller recently arrived in New Amsterdam with his lunatic mother, two bags of medical implements, and a carefully guarded book of his own medicines, moved into a one-room house near White Hall, and soon found work at the hospital on Brew Street. There, surrounded by misshapen bottles containing tinctures of saffron, wild strawberry, maple, and oil of amber, as well as more common tools of his trade, amputation saws, scalpels, sharpened needles, and long, painstakingly pounded probes, he indulged his peculiar perversion, slicing heads. Mostly, he studied the heads of pigs and cows, the latter of which had a brain that resembled the human one pictured in Dr. Galen's anatomy, and was therefore of particular interest to the doctor. Late nights beneath the warm glow of the hospital's oil lamp, he unlocked his personal cabinet and marveled at the perfectly preserved gray-pink tissue he'd sealed in glass jars of brine. Had the Catholic Church not condemned his work, Olaf would have studied his brains during the day as well. But propriety compelled him to conceal his true passion and instead care for his mother, his patients, and his small bed of medicinal herbs. Mornings, when obligation did not busy him, he sat at Gert's Inn. Under the low wood ceiling, he pressed his forehead to his hands and thought about the brain and the human soul, until his musings formed words, spoken words like animal spirits and the Fleming man's head, which he repeated until the innkeeper said, Beg your pardon? The Fleming man's head. Olaf blushed, his pale skin bursting with a pink that colored the dark circles beneath his eyes. His high forehead had led most of New Amsterdam to conclude that he had a large heart as well, and despite his odd outbursts and solitary conversations, his behavior confirmed this opinion. He was always willing to make late-night house calls and attend to the penniless when they complained of boils, headache, or gangrene. Unlike his predecessors, sullen young doctors who had crossed the Atlantic in search of a better life, Olaf even made an effort to treat the farm animals. Forgive me, he said. It's that time, Gert chuckled. Tonight's moon will be big as an udder. Best to stay in today. There's nothing but wickedness afoot this time of month. Olaf had already felt the moon's effect. Just before sunrise, his mother, wielding a skillet, had broken through the wood wall at the back of their house. He had been forced to bind her wrists with twine before locking her in the crate he had built for her. He feared the strength of her madness would find expression in her hands and shoulders, allowing her to escape and run through the streets. Already the neighbors spoke in hushed tones when he passed by. He sensed that they suspected what he alone knew, that his mother was not merely feverish, as he'd claimed upon their arrival. Kirsten Menger Anderson has been shortlisted for the Richard Yates Award, the Glimmer Train Short Story Award for New Writers, the Iowa Review Story Contest, and the Andre Dubus Award. Her first book is Dr. Olaf von Schuler's Brain. Thank you for joining me, Kirsten. Thank you for having me. Kirsten, this is a really wonderful book, and it has some very interesting literary techniques. Now, this is, I think, the first book where I've ever seen anybody use a genealogy table as a, as a literary device. <laughs> so tell me a little bit how, uh, how you conceived uh, of, uh, of the 
the idea for this book and, and explain what that idea is. Actually, the genealogy too is not one of the first things I did. It, it evolved in the process of writing the book. Um, I started writing individual short stories. The first one I wrote was Reading Grandpa's Head about phrenology. And that got me interested in just the history of medicine and medicine, medical science. And I read a couple of medical histories, which inspired other pieces. And I had several stories, four or five maybe, when I decided this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book about some of the previous ideas we'd had in medicine that might seem foolish now, but in their times were common and, you know, used. As I was writing them, I got the idea of, of tracing a family. And so some of the pieces that I'd already written, I had to rewrite a little bit in order to make them conform to one story per generation or, you know, change the characters a little bit to fit the ages or the relationships that I needed. Um, and I actually bought a piece of genealogy software. You know, something I found a $30 piece of software and I used it to construct this family tree. It was a lot of fun. I, I just, I made all the relationships and um, I realized as I was doing it that I had never done that for my own family. I mean, I did a fictional family before my own, so that actually prompted me to make a family tree for my family. Um, but my first family tree was with the software and for this book. And it was very useful as I was working on the book because it helped me keep track of um, you know, how old the characters were and how, uh, how much time had passed. And it became a tool for me, somewhat like an outline, um, just as I was writing also. You know, when I made changes, I'd change the tree or you know, as I was rereading, I would check the tree to the text to make sure that it was consistent. Well, you know, as a reader, it's really interesting because I was found myself constantly referring to it and really liking it the way that it, it allows you to do something, I think, really interesting um, to create uh, individual like little jewel-like stories that, that have relationships. And then we can go back and forth between the two. It, it lets the reader be a detective in a way. And it's a really interesting technique. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk about, as you put this book together, how much you decided to leave in and out of the stories and the connections between the stories? Uh, there are characters from previous stories that appear in later stories. Usually they're not main characters in more than one story for, for the most part. I like to put little hints of what happened to people. Usually it wasn't something that is fundamental to the story, but it's something that readers could pick up on and say, oh, now I know what happened to that Macy's clerk, or I know what happened to Lubert Doss. They're just little little clues, I guess, in, in a way. Yes, you can trace the family, or perhaps the character's not in another story, but you can see, oh, wow, they died just a year later. So, yeah, there are little clues to what happened to everyone. Now, when you, you say the first book you wrote, or first story you wrote, was, was uh, Reading Grandpa's Head... <laughs> <laughs> which is such a great title. <laughs> and, and this brings up one of my favorite topics, phrenology. So uh, what, what did you, uh, when did you first encounter phrenology? What made you decide to write a story about it? I know that I was reading about phrenology, and that inspired the story. I think I didn't know much about it, and I can't remember now how it had come up, but I was looking it up just to learn more about it. And I was very taken by all the names for the different organs and the head and the whole idea of reading personality just by rubbing hands over the skull. and Could you explain what it is real, real quickly to, to the listeners? Phrenology is the science of um, determining personality by 
just rubbing your fingers over your head, over your skull, and feeling the bumps and the indentations. And that will tell a trained phrenologist what a person's strength and weaknesses are, their tendency to murder, their tendency to love their children, their love for colors. They're just all different all different aspects of personality can be can be figured out just by the shape of your head. Now you say this in a manner that scares me. <laughs> you make it sound. Are there still people around who believe in phrenology? Subscribe to it? There may be. I, I don't know. It's certainly not a common, common belief. If 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 it is believed, I know the um, the phrenologist in the story actually his um, first name Fowler is a nod to some to the Fowler brothers who were practitioners of phrenology in, in around the time of the story. Now, once you kind of came up with the the, the you, you started, did you deliberately write another book or another story? <laughs> I have to say, the reason I'm saying this is because the stories seem are really full. They're full of life. It's almost like reading a little book. It's like a, a, a highly compact 10-book series in here. Um, uh, once, when you started, once you wrote the story, Reading Grandpa's Head, did that pique your interest in, in writing stories that are based around our understandings of medicine or when did that come out pretty much right away <laughs> uh, pretty much i i was so taken by the phrenology story i really was happy with reading grandpa's head i sought out the medical histories and i found more inspiration in them and i actually i've written additional pieces on medical ideas or medicine in the past that aren't in the book i mean i i i was very taken by by that topic. Now, um, as, as you started doing the research for each story, I, I have to ask you, did, did the stories come out of the research, are, that is, as you're trolling through our, the hist, our tortured history, <laughs> literally <laughs> tortured history of medicine, um, did, did you, you'd see an idea and it'd jump out at you and the characters would come? Or could you talk a little bit about the interplay between the research and the creation of the stories? I know that the seed for most of them was the science. Mm -hmm. Not all. One of them, say, my name is Lubert Das. That one came from a painting. Mm, and um, it's a Bosch painting called Extraction of the Stone of Madness. And it's basically a painting that depicts a, a, a trepanation, which is the technique in the story. But in that story, the character is Lubert Das, who, which is a, an inscription on the painting. It's kind of translates to Master Remove the Stone, my name is Lubert Das. And so I had the character and the medicine at once. And, and I just, wow. when I was writing it, you know, I was thinking about that painting or, you know, that's, that was a spark for it. It, it, it came with sort of this foolish fool, and a little bit crazy in the, in the story, but that's where that one came from. I knew that when I read about curative radium, which is one of the techniques in his story. I knew that I wanted to write a piece about it, and the characters fell out. And I can't say where, how, how it did. I don't remember now. A lot, you know, I wrote these over a period of four or five years, and a lot of the initial thinking about these stories happened a while ago, and I, I can't tell you now how it happened. I don't I don't recall, but I know that I have content generation deadlines that I put on myself when I'm drafting, and I would sit and write, and you know, two thousand words say in a day, and so some of it just fell out of that exercise of 
of drafting and coming up with stories and forcing myself to come up with stories and characters. And so you're a, a word per day person. I'm a word per day person. Yes. Do you it's... write at the same time every day? I like to write in the mornings, which is a little bit surprising because I never really was a morning person. But I find now that that's the time that before other parts of the day start draining my energy. <laughs> that's, the, that's the time when I, I seem to get the most work done or the best work done. You're obviously a, a highly talented short story writer, and you're right. You've, been, you've written a lot of stories. I, 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 could you talk about the decision to turn stories into a novel? That's a, that's an interesting decision, and not a common one, not not in the way that you did it, at least. I mean, it's funny. As I was working on it, I never thought of it as a novel. I thought of it as a collection of linked stories, mm -hmm. and I. I'm always a little bit surprised when people call it a novel, but I, it has been called a novel, and I can see why it is. I mean, it does deal with common themes. It does have a storyline. Um, but because my process of writing it was a process of writing short stories, that's the way I think of it. You know, a lot of, a lot of these pieces appeared separately in magazines. I published them as short stories in magazines. So to me, it's something in between. I didn't... When I was working on it, I was working on a book. That's what I, I thought. I was, I was going to put these together into a book, and that was the word I used. And um, I wanted them to work together, and I wanted to be able to publish them, really, too. That was. And so you chose common theme stories so you could would facilitate the publication of a book, as it were. At some point, yes. I mean, in the beginning, I was writing separate pieces, and mm -hmm. then... And then I was writing about, the, then I was deliberately working on them together and putting them together mm -hmm. and changing them so that they work together. So yeah, at some point in the process, I really, I was thinking of them as a unit, as a book, as a single, as a single thing. Now, were you writing other short stories in between these? Um, that were outside the book and, and I guess outside the remit of the, of the project, as it were. Not really. I mean, there are other short stories that were related that didn't go in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote, I drafted a novel as I was doing it, um, mm -hmm. which, which is in a drawer. <laughs> but I mean, I did work on another project um, while I was writing these. Not so many other stories. No, it was pretty much the focus of my energy. Now, uh, are these stories have a really interesting? I mean, science. Of perspective, in a way, you could call this science fiction, just in by virtue of the fact that it's fiction about science. <laughs> and, and in fact, much of the the science in here is uh, no longer science fiction; even it's uh, it's superstition. Uh, could you talk about your interest in science? I mean, were you always really interested in, in medicine and science, or did did uh, once you stumbled into phrenology, you just went down the rabbit hole? I think I've always been interested in science. My parents are both scientists. They're chemists, not doctors, but they're not medical doctors. But science has always been part of my life. There was some tension when I went off to college and did not take freshman chemistry. <laughs> but uh, I, I certainly have always had a, a great respect for and admiration of scientists and, you know, sort of that pursuit of of understanding and of knowledge. 
well, well let's talk about some of the individual stories because they're, they're all just really wonderful. Uh, the, the story that begins the book is the, the title story, Dr. Olaf von Schuler's Brain. Um, <laughs> it's set in 1664, uh, and I guess that brings me another kind of process question. When you started creating this book uh, and creating the generations, uh, could you talk a little bit about the dates? I mean, why did you choose this date for this story and this place to start? I, um, the first story was one I wrote later. So it was after I'd already decided to do a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose that date. The driving force, I think, or inspiration behind that book was a nonfiction book I was reading. What nonfiction book? It was called Soul Made Flesh by Carl Zimmer. Um, and it was basically the search for, basically, I mean, it was the search for the soul and the brain. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and probably the date fell out of that. Now, one of the things in this story that I really love is this is this concept that, and this comes back again and again, uh, we can heal the soul. And I really love that idea that, that um, we think now of medicine as being very uh, physically based. We cure. It's all about, you know, the bits and things, you know, chemistry. It's all, we're all a, gi- a giant chemical reaction. And so your parents were actually, in many ways, perfect doctors. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the, this is one of the things I love about this book, the, the perceptions of medicine that we see it and, and that we see characters who, for their time, are very learned, but we know far more than them. Could you talk about uh, the process of creating these characters who are advanced for their time, you know, the whiz kids for their time or, or you know, brainiacs, as it were, but now they just seem like primitive and somewhat scary. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one of the, the themes of the book or one of the themes that I was really interested in, which is that our ideas of truth and what is healthy and what is good has really changed over the years, sometimes because of technologies that are available to us now that weren't available before, you know, just plain trial and error experiments and you know, all, all of these ideas of the past from our standpoint today, we can see that perhaps they were ill-advised or maybe they most certainly were ill-advised, but that in a few generations, people will look back at us today, perhaps with the same criticisms of some of the practices we have today as standard. And I don't know what they are. I mean, I'm very happy to go to the doctor and get medicine when I'm feeling sick, but I suspect my grandchildren might I think that some of the things I did were were pretty scary. <laughs> One thing that that um, happens uh, that is said in this in Doctor von, Olaf von Schuler's brain, and this is a really great perception, is that he's unhappy or, or, or you know flummoxed by the fact that at, at the time people could watch someone die and think it was God's will that they die, and yet it was the devil's work to try to stop that. And that's a really fascinating turnaround perception that we it seems crazy to us today, or to most of us at least. Yeah. I think also one of the sparks for that story is that the idea of uh, performing an autopsy was frowned upon. You, you couldn't open up a human body and, and look at the organs inside. There's a bit in the beginning about um, the head of a cow that resembled the one in Galen's anatomy, and I, 
I read that actually the brain picture there was the cow brain because even back in Galen's time, you know, throughout the centuries, the body was somewhat sacred. You couldn't, you couldn't open it up. And so there, it really made it very difficult to learn about how it worked. In that sense, finding the cure, learning more, was violating something that was sacred. Or, you know, was it, there was a lot of opposition from various churches over the time against doing that. Well, one thing, too, that comes up in the story, and again and again throughout, I guess, our history of medicine, is the idea of curing emotions, <laughs> which is, I can think of a few emotions I would like to cure, not necessarily my own. <laughs> Could you talk about that idea of curing, like, violence and anger and madness? It comes up again and again in the collection, and often the cure is not effective. It proves impossible to cure the madness. Say in the story of the siblings, which is an early a story about early psychosurgery, there is a brother and two sisters, and the youngest sister is mad, and the brother goes off to the continent and, and learns this technique for basically performing a lobotomy. It was before the term was applied to lobotomy, but it was more or less that procedure, and he really thinks that he's curing her violent tendencies and her madness by performing this on his on his sister and she dies several months after he does the surgery so i think as i was writing the book i really wanted the physicians to be doing their best to help people there's no malice there's no intention to hurt someone but often in their efforts to help people harm was harm was done now, we're introduced to another character in this story, and this is the one character who's consistent through the whole book, and that's the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is one of the things I love. There's so many things to love about this book, and this is one of the things I really loved is that this, I mean, the United States is, is there through the whole thing, and we get to see these glimpses of it. Could you talk about the integrating the history and the medicine and the characters? That's a, 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 a complicated juggling act that you keep up through the whole book, and you keep it up really well. Thank you. Yeah, a little bit about that. Sometimes I did choose dates based on social things that were happening um, because I didn't want to look just at medicine's dark past. I mean, there are things, social things in our past that have evolved and changed as well. And we look back on things like slavery or there are a big theme in the book is uh, women's rights. You know, there are mm -hmm. a couple stories. A hysteria, for example, deals with a woman who's her father prevents her from doing her work and claims that she has a disease, and that's what's causing her to you know, volunteer at a prison and be upset when he tells her that she can't anymore. In another story, women aren't allowed to vote, but they are allowed to vote for Congress. There's no, or, I'm sorry, run for Congress. There's no law about that. But I just, I wanted to include those just so as not to focus entirely on medicine. I, I didn't want to single out medicine as something that has a dark past. I mean, I think that a lot of things have changed over the <laughs> 350 years <laughs> uh, uh, that this book covers. So. Now, um, I'm a confirmed Fordian, and so when, <laughs> when I see a story called The Burning that turns out to be about spontaneous human combustion, I, I really love that. <laughs> uh, and, and 
this story brings out one of the things I, that I love about, I think, all the stories in this book. You have a really interesting sense of ending the story. And I think that the way you end these stories, in particular, they all have a similar kind of sense of uh, a reach. We're just about to reach for something. We don't quite get that, but we it's a reach. And I think that really, is that a deliberate echo for, I guess, our understanding of, of science and medicine? It seemed like the way that your short story writing style was was uh, echoing some of the themes, the medical themes in the book. I love that you read it that way. I, I, w- I would love to just say yes. <laughs> it was not a deliberate a deliberate parallel in my mind as I was writing, but I, I really love that you read it that way. I, um, no, I, I ended the stories where I felt they ended. I, you know, I just got to the end. I said, this is the end of the story. So I wasn't deliberately trying to do anything more than in that particular chapter. Now, um, when it comes to uh, spontaneous human combustion, um, one of the things that's that's interesting, and this is, again, a theme we see um, again and again through the book, is that <clears throat> each, of, each uh, story, the people in each story have a really different sense of what's possible. And, and that's a really interesting perception. We think we know. I mean, when every moment we live, we think, well, this is what could happen and this is what could not happen. And so one of the things these, these stories do is undermine our own sense of certainty in our own lives. <laughs> well, good. You know, I think that we should keep questioning the things that we are certain about because I'm, I suspect that a lot of things that we are quote unquote certain about will prove to be untrue or maybe not quite what we think they are. I um, was just thinking the other day, I had a a fifth grade teacher who, when we were doing biology, told the class, oh, you know, all the species have been discovered. It's all, it's all, it's all done. You know, we can learn them, but they've all been discovered. And I believed her. You know, this is my teacher who told me this, and this was, and even though I, I um, later learned clearly <laughs> that was not the case. I mean, new species are discovered every day, well, not every day, but to this day, it, it was something that I needed to question, and um, I I think just because we've been taught something or just because we've read it in a book or just because it's commonly accepted does not mean that it's something that shouldn't be questioned. In Happy Effects, uh, we are, we're introduced to um, another lovely uh, urban legends, and, and you kind of uh, talk a, a little bit about Jan Bondesen. You, you yes. mentioned him a little bit. Could you talk about the influence of, of his work and, and just his perception of, of how those the perceptions of urban legends have informed this book? Oh, I loved his work. I read several of his books, and they directly inspired several of the stories. Happy Effects, one of them, the the burning as well, were both fell out of reading his, his work. Happy Effects actually was from uh, a book called Buried Alive that he wrote, which is a whole book about just in history, people being afraid of being buried alive and um, how people tried to determine how 
have doctors and even each other tried to determine how someone was dead and how, um, and this is one of the things in the history that I read that he wrote, which is that because people were so afraid of being buried alive and because medicine couldn't conclusively prove that someone was dead, they would actually allow corpses to sit for several days, basically, until they began to putrefy in order to absolutely make sure that the person was dead. So that was that was the spark for that story. And, and the timing I, I was actually when those fires, the fires described in the stories that was happening in New York at the time. So. Um, well, you know, what's interesting is, is that when you, and again, one of the great things about this book is it really makes you think about things. And, and how we define death helps define decide how we define life. Well, and actually, how we define death is still kind of an ethical thing. I mean, we're still debating that, and the definition is changing still. People, uh, the Terry Schiavo case is a perfect example of that. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Lubberdas and uh, trepanation, which is something that's still practiced today, isn't it? Aren't there people who still do that today? There, there are a few. Yes. <laughs> Did you talk to any of them? I didn't. No, <laughs> I. I've read a little bit about about um, a couple of them. There's there's a woman who lives in England, I think, and she did a video of uh, trepanation of herself, and it's called Heartbeat in the Brain. I keep a little blog that I, I would post stories that were related to some of the ideas that are in the book, so I posted about about that movie, and that's the post that gets the most hits on my blog. <laughs> I have a lot of people searching for that. So people are interested and, and fascinated in that. I don't know if the movie is available. I, I haven't seen it. Now, um, why do you think people are so interested in trepanation? I mean, it, it's kind of scary. <laughs> and and uh, especially since, as you say, this uh, story is based on a Hieronymus Bosch painting. That's not, that's not something you want to use for a medical text. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I do know that people have been trepanating for a very long time. I mean, they found evidence that this is happening thousands of years ago, that it's been a treatment that we've done. So there is some kind of fascination with it or use of it for much time. I, I'm i not an expert on it. I, you know, I can't give you a lot of details, but just in the course of my reading, I, I have noticed that. So maybe it's just... I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's my answer for you. I really can't tell you. But uh, it's it's a, it's a sometimes I think people are drawn to things that disturb them and I think maybe there's an element of that. I've been speaking with Kirsten Menger Anderson. Her first book is Dr. Olaf von Schuler's Brain and we've been picking Kirsten Menger Anderson's brain. Thank you for joining me, Kirsten. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.